good to sing with you, good to worship with you this morning. Easter in July. Bibles, Matthew 28 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew 28. If you have your phone app, your Bible app on your phone, let's turn to Matthew 28. And if you have none of those things, we will have the scripture on, oh, it's doing the thing, isn't it? It's doing the thing. All right, yeah, we're going to make it. It never does it on the second service when it's not online. It's just the first service, so everybody at home can be uh, annoyed enough that hopefully you'll come visit us and be in person, all right? So Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be this morning. From the, listen, from the manger to the cross, we have followed the life of Jesus for 18 months through the study of the book of Matthew. And today, that study comes to an end. And uh, what are we going to do next? Well, you'll find out next week when we find out, okay? Uh, we're going to, I promise you, the next book of the Bible will be a shorter book of the Bible, okay? And, uh, and so I'm excited. We're probably going to look at one of the minor prophets, and I'm um, still trying to decide which one. But I hope that through our study of Matthew, through our study of Jesus, uh, you've learned something new about the life of Christ. And I pray that you've been encouraged I pray that you've been challenged. I pray in some way, by God's grace, you have even been changed by our study of Matthew. I would ask what sermon or what thought or what theme throughout the last 18 months has really stuck out to you, but I'm afraid nobody would answer, and it would be a shot to me, my whatever, my pride, I don't know. And so we're just going to pretend you guys learned a lot, and we're going to move on. But uh, listen, because of our goal... Our goal in opening the scriptures, whether it's a study for one week or it's a study for 70 weeks, our goal is to know God better. Every time we open the scriptures, to know God better. And here's the deal. In knowing God better, we get to know ourselves better. And the more we get to know ourselves, the more we realize we are in desperate need of submitting our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ and bringing our lives into obedience to Christ. Why? Because of the cross. Because of Matthew chapter 27 and our sermon last week. Last week, we, we reached this pivotal moment where God's wrath and God's love collides at the cross. At the cross, Jesus lost his life so that we could find ours. Last week, we said that the cross changes everything for us. The cross is our why for everything we do as disciples of Jesus. Every word, every deed, every, every thought, every motive is now to be filtered through the foot of the cross. The cross makes us better husbands and wives and moms and dads. The cross make us, makes us better employers and employees and neighbors and friends. There is wonder-working power in the blood-stained cross of Christ in Matthew chapter 27 because the tomb is empty in Matthew chapter 28. You see, without the empty tomb, the cross is powerless. And without the cross, the empty tomb is meaningless. But combined, the cross and the empty tomb, the church becomes unstoppable. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 says this. 
early on, early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Now remember, at this moment, the disciples of Jesus are still in hiding. They're still in fear of their lives. They are confused and they are broken and they are afraid and they're feeling helpless and they're feeling hopeless. But verse one says there's a new day dawning. And verse two says, suddenly there was this great earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. And his face shone like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified, who was dead. Verse 6, he isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. And then the invitation to come and see where his body was, past tense, lying. So when the world asks us, why Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus? Our answer is found in verse 6. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. We know that part, but don't miss the last thing. The angel says, just as he said, what happened? It's important because we follow Jesus because no one else has done for us what Jesus has done for us. At least four things here. Number one, he claimed to be God. I don't know how you could study the book of Matthew or any of the gospels for that matter and not come to that conclusion, although there's religions that have come to that conclusion. It's why Jesus died on the cross, because he claimed his claim to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God. Number two, he predicted his own death. Number three, he predicted his own resurrection. And then, number four, he did it. <laughs> Listen, I just believe if you predict your own death, and you predict your resurrection from the dead, and then you do it, you deserve my attention. And Jesus deserves our attention. And the angel continues in verse 7. And now, here's what I need you to do, ladies. I need you to go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Remember what I have told you. <laughs> and the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but they're also filled with this great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus himself met them, and he greeted them, and they, and they ran to him, and they grasped his feet, and they worshipped him. It's quite a scene. They, they were going to the tomb that morning, trying to probably figure out how they're going to roll the stone away so they could properly prepare Jesus' body his dead body for a proper burial. And they get there, and all of a sudden they're not talking to themselves or preparing a dead body. They're talking to an angel, and there is no body. And then they're given instructions, and so they're running into town, and they're afraid, and they're full of joy, and there's all of this confusion. And then here they are face-to-face -face with Jesus. And obviously their emotions are back and forth, from fear to joy, but then they see him, and there is no confusion. 
in that moment about who he is. In that moment, there is no confusion about what the resurrection means. The fact that they were in this text able to grasp his feet proves that this isn't some phantom or some ghost or some group hallucination going on between these ladies. This was God in flesh, worthy of all honor and glory and praise and worship. And verse 10, then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. And then Matthew changes to another scene, a more chaotic scene, the easily forgotten scene of this text. The soldiers, who were previously fainted because of this whole resurrection, and here they are now left guarding an empty tomb. And as they as the women were on their way in verse 11, some of the guards went into the city and they told the leading priest what had happened and a meeting of elders were called and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you don't get in trouble. You're not going to die because of you, you lost the body. So the guards accepted the bribe, and they said what they were told to say. And I want you to notice the end of verse 15. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they what? They still tell it to this day. This, by the way, is... It really is the only other option for the empty tomb. History proves that Jesus was a real person. He really died. He was really buried in a grave, and that grave three days later was really empty. Those facts can no longer be ignored or pushed aside by those who just wish there was no God. There's just too much historical evidence outside of the Holy Scriptures. So there are only two options. Either Jesus arose from the grave alive or his body was stolen from the grave. And the people who orchestrated this whole crucifixion, the people who crucified Jesus was afraid of this. They, they knew an empty tomb would give fuel to this Jesus movement. That's why they had so many soldiers stationed Outside the tomb to guard it. Alex, I'm switching. Thank you, sir. However, anyone that wasn't so close-minded to the possibility of a resurrection out of fear of holy accountability, and that's what it is. Nobody wants to be accountable to a God, so it's easier just to pretend there is no God. But hear me, anyone that wasn't so close-minded to the possibility of a resurrection out of the fear of holy accountability would realize that there really isn't a second option at all. The theory of the disciples stealing the body of Jesus makes no sense if you just follow it to its logical end. If the disciples stole the body of Jesus to keep the movement alive, then it would have been solely a selfish act by the disciples, correct? Although I'm not really sure what those selfish reasons would have been since following Jesus cost them everything in and of themselves, but perhaps there was still some fame to claim. I don't know what that would have been, but yet, 
the message of a resurrection would go on to cause these men tremendous persecution. There would be no fame for the disciples of this movement. Jesus even warned them of this in the Gospel of John. In John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. Verse 20, since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. Sounds like a motivational speech for a sign-up, huh? And yet one by one, these disciples would be executed for their unwillingness to deny a resurrected Jesus. Why? Because they knew that the resurrection was true. They knew it. Listen, nobody, nobody dies for a lie. At some point, you walk away when the pain outweighs the lie. And yet, one by one, these men died pledging their allegiance to a risen Lord. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some of them doubted. That's just a normal Sunday morning around here, isn't it? (laughs) We're only here for an hour, and you're like, there's moments I'm worshipping, and then there's moments I'm doubting. I believe this text still speaks to the chaos and the confusion of the moment. The disciples are torn between standing in awe of of their risen Lord and struggling with the feelings of uncertainty. What did it mean that he was here? They thought he was dead, but now he's alive. Now what? What happens next? Well, what happens next is Jesus gathers his disciples and he gives them one last message before he ascends back to the right hand of the Father. What happens next is a message revealing God's plan for world missions. And this mission will start with a handful of ordinary men from Galilee. And eventually, it will make its way all the way to DeSoto, Missouri. God's plan revealed in Matthew 28 to his original disciples is still God's plan for us today. And the plan we've come to know is the Great Commission, starting in verse 18. Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, now, anytime you see a therefore or a wherefore in scripture, it's connecting what he's about to say to what he has just said, right? A little English lesson there. So Jesus says, I have been given all power, all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples. This might be my favorite part of the commission because it's the part nobody knows because we quit reading after baptizing them. But Jesus says this, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. We'll come back to that. And be sure of this, Jesus says, I am with you always. We need that because there's moments we don't know. 
We don't feel that he is with us, but he says, listen, be sure of this. You can, you can stand on this solid foundation of truth. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. And so what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time is I want us to look at four observations from the Great Commission. For some of you, this will be a review. For some of you that are new to Journey, this is exciting because I get to share something with you that is a foundational truth of our church. But the first observation is this. First, I want you to notice the command of the text. The command is to go make disciples. That's the command. Go and make disciples. I believe the church today is trying so hard to fit into the culture around it, hoping to convince the world that we don't have an agenda. The problem with that is we have an agenda. The church has an agenda. God has given us an agenda. It's to make disciples. It's the ministry and message of reconciliation from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen, I love our gatherings. I love being with you. I love singing with you. I love that we are very community-oriented and we're focused on serving others. But in everything we do, singing is not our agenda. Community service is not the agenda. It's a means to an end. In everything we do, our agenda is to make disciples of Jesus. And I am encouraged that we are not obligated to do this in our own power. That's the second observation because Jesus has given all authority in heaven and earth to relinquish on his disciples that same power and authority. He, fulfill, he, he fills us so that we can fulfill the command to make disciples. We are commissioned with heaven's authority to do heaven's work. And that is both encouraging and convicting because I am encouraged that God equips us with what we need to make disciples. However, I am convicted that with God's authority on our church, on our lives, we aren't doing more with greater effectiveness. It almost feels like making disciples has become secondary to the church. If it happens, it just happens naturally as we pursue other agendas. The problem is true. Biblical discipleship doesn't normally happen naturally. Discipleship takes intentionality. Discipleship consumes our time. Discipleship is hard work. It must be long-suffering. Real biblical discipleship is raw and it's vulnerable and it doesn't just fit into this very well. It doesn't, it doesn't fit very well into our American church philosophy because we want discipleship to fit neatly inside our discipleship box in a discipleship class that meets on Sundays from, from 9 to 10 or 11 to 12 or maybe a midweek service. We want discipleship to fit in that time, but that's not how discipleship works. It doesn't fit into a time frame. It's constant, and it's messy, 
and it's exhausting. And the problem is those three, those three descriptives just don't fit very well into American Christianity. We don't like things that exhaust us. We certainly don't like things that are messy or complicated or doesn't have a start and end time. <laughs> Our rhythm here at Journey that addresses this is changed people. Changed people. More on that in just a moment, but as we are being discipled, as we are being discipled, we are to disciple. That's what that means. And we center our entire lives around this new way of life. And how do we do that? We, we do that by embracing our brand new identity in Christ. It's the third observation because Jesus mentions in verse 20 our baptismal identity as disciples. In verse 19 when he, or I'm sorry, verse 19 when he coined here, or we've coined here at the church, not baptismal identity, but we call it what? Our gospel identity. We talk about it all of the time, and it's, it's one of our seven gospel marks as a church. Our, our, our gospel identity is this. We are family, we are servants, and we are missionaries. You see it here in the Great Commission when Jesus says that we are baptized in the name of God the Father. Family. Ephesians 2 says, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles, that's us, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. And Jesus speaks in John chapter 13 of what this family does. He says, this new command that I'm going to give you is this. You are to love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And so we love each other as family. And we love the world as not yet family. It is to be the mark of a Christian. They will know you by your love. He also says that we're baptized in the in the name of God the Son. We know that Jesus came from heaven to take on the form of a servant. And he served us to his death. In John 13, 13, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right because that's what I am. Verse 14, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. Since I have served you, you ought to wash each other's feet. And Paul in Galatians 5 says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to what? Serve one another in love. He also says we are baptized in the name of God, the Holy Spirit. We know that we are empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus or missionaries for Jesus. In Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Romans 8.11, Paul says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. 
It's a powerful moment. It's a powerful realization. It's a powerful truth. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. There is no room for a powerless church in this world because we are empowered by the spirit of God. I saw this thought, and man, it was it just, you ever just read something and it just blesses you, and you're like, wow, that's so powerful. I can't remember where I read this, but there was this, this image given that one day we're going to step into glory in the presence of God, and we're going to see the heroes of the faith. We're going to get to, at some point in forever, we're probably going to get to have a conversation with Moses. We're like, how was that to just lift a stick? And the Red Sea, we're going to get to talk to David. Like, you really, like, one rock? And this thought was, you know what the saints are going to ask us? You had the Holy Spirit inside of you. What was that like? I'm like, oh, that's kind of convicting. Because we have in us what they could only dream of. The fourth observation is this. Notice our responsibility in making disciples. Verse 20, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. Our responsibility is to teach others what we have been taught. Changed people change people. And this is important because there's voices inside our head telling us that we can't disciple others because we're not adequate that we can't disciple others because they might ask us questions that we don't have the answers to and we don't want to embarrass ourselves or we don't want to offend them. And the truth is, and this is what I never could get wrap my head around. If the church, if, if our lost friends knew that as a church we believe that anyone lost and they die in that condition apart from Christ... They're going to spend eternity in hell. They should be offended that we're not talking to them. <laughs> like, wait a minute. You really believe if I die without Jesus, I'm going to die and go to hell? And you've never, I mean, I'm not going to believe it. <laughs> I'm not going to follow Jesus. But not once have you come to me. They should be more offended that we're not discipling or trying to disciple them and point them to Jesus. Jesus says, just teach them to obey what I have taught you. We are to disciple others as we are being discipled. And I think the church is, we've overcomplicated this thing. I grew up in an era where you had to memorize like the entire Romans road to be able to, to evangelize or to, to disciple someone. You had to memorize all of the scripture, or there's another program we were a part of, Dare to Share, and I love this. is not a diss on them, because many people were saved through this, but there was these six points that you had to memorize, and it was an acronym of the gospel, and so I feel like for some people, if they couldn't memorize it, or they didn't feel like they could talk through it smoothly enough, they, it was just a barrier, and they couldn't share their faith, and they couldn't talk about it. I just think we've overcomplicated it. By trying to make it simple, we've overcomplicated it, because it really is this easy. You just let the Spirit display through you and then tell people why we have kingdom rhythms we forgiven people forgive people you forgive enough people somebody's going to say why are you forgiving them and you're going to get the opportunity to say because my heavenly father has forgiven me there's not an evangelistic tool that is as great as that you don't have to memorize romans 
323 and 6.23 and 5.8. And you don't have to have all those memorized. You just have to say, I forgive you and you don't deserve it because my heavenly father forgave me when I didn't deserve it. That's all we have to do. Just go tell the world. Just go give them what God has given you. And if they ask you a question and you don't know the answer to, it's okay. Because you're just discipling them as you are discipled. And apparently, you haven't been discipled in that question yet. And so, this is your moment. You go find the answer to that question. Congratulations, you're discipled in that subject. And now you get to go share what you have learned. Fishers and Yeah. So, here's the deal. We are empowered by Jesus. We have the authority of Jesus to fulfill the mission of making disciples for Jesus. That is our agenda. That's it. In fact, I'm going to put this on the screen because this might be easy to remember. To love and live like Jesus and lead others to do the same. Question. Who are you leading to love and live like Jesus. It's what Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, when he says this, and you should imitate me. By the way, that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is an invitation to invite others to imitate you. Paul says, you shouldn't imitate me just as I Imitate Christ. So who are you inviting to imitate you? By the way, if you have kids, you don't even have to make that invitation. It's automatic. Who are you inviting to imitate you as you imitate Christ? Three application questions to answer this week, and this is it. Number one is this. Who is discipling you? Who in your life is a mentor that is discipling you in the gospel, that is pointing you every day to Jesus? One opportunity you're going to have this week is we're going to start midweeks. This is hard. It's hard to disciple on Sunday morning. This, you know, you sit, I stand, we, I talk, you, you listen, and there's, there's truths. We, we preach the gospel here, so this is certainly... A, a discipleship tool, but we have found that the greatest discipleship happens not in rows, but when you're sitting at a table and there's conversations and there's back and forth and there's questions and there's answers. So midweek, which starts this week, by the way, a free plug here, is, is a great opportunity. For the next five weeks, you're going to get um, to be discipled in prayer. Now, I know our church doesn't need help with prayer. I know this is probably for other churches, and you've got it all figured out. But maybe you should come just so you can learn some things to teach others, right? No, we need discipled in prayer. But we all need somebody that's discipling us. Who is that person? Who are those people for you? The second question is this. And by the way, if, if you don't have a name, to put on that list this week? Find one. Find one. Find one. 
I can't meet with you every week, but if you want to buy me coffee, I'll meet with you anytime at the coffee shop. Be good for both of us. Iron sharpens iron. Somebody needs to be discipling you. Number two, who are you discipling? Changed people, change people. Discipled people, disciple people. And so you need to name them. And again, if you have kids, bam, it's already there. If you have a spouse, bam, you already have a built-in person that you can be discipling. You can be inviting to imitate you as you imitate Christ. What about a neighbor? What about the coworker? What about your weird uncle, Larry? What about the kid across the street that nobody else wants to talk to? Who are you discipling? Listen. The moment Jesus saved you, the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the day of redemption. That's Bible. The reason he doesn't take you out of this world in that very moment is because he wants to equip you, empower you, to use you to disciple others. And when he is done using you to disciple others, he will take you out. But if you woke up this morning with breath in your lungs, it's to make much of Jesus. It's all we have left to do as Christians, to make much of Jesus in our marriages, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at work, in the cubicle, in the boardroom, in the restaurant, in the grocery store, on Facebook, and whatever the kids do these days. Make much of Jesus.